The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Good evening. Go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be there in just a moment. Once you get to that opening, and now that I think about it, when you get to Mark chapter 12 and you get to that opening, put a marker in there and then go over to Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Just put a marker. We'll go right back. And then go over to Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. And while you're doing that, I want you to look down and be reading Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. Read it very carefully. Luke 10 and verse 2. See what it says? Luke 10 and verse 2. Okay, now that you possibly have read it, or maybe you are, when your granddaddy and your daddy went into the fields, they didn't wear a coat and a tie and a napkin. And I'm in a different kind of field, but I'm taking mine off because I learned last night it gets kind of warm up here. So I'm going to pull it off. And that's my excuse. Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. Because the Lord is sending forth labors to the harvest because he knows that the harvest is white. And I'm just one of those laborers. And as a laborer, I'm going to dress a little bit more like a laborer for just a moment or two. But anyway, Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Here's what the scripture says. We read it so many times over and over. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Verse 31, again, we will not have time to get to it in this effort, this meeting event. But nonetheless, verse 31, and the second is likened to it, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Now I want you to just set this aside, study on your own because we won't get down again to verse 31, but I want you to set aside and study on your own that the direct quote as Mark labels it, and he's inspired to do so, by our Lord says there is none greater than these. And that word implies none greater than these, that there are multiples, and you just saw what that was. But by him saying there are none greater than these, he melded those two together so that we could constantly understand how we illustrate what we have already incorporated, okay? And what we're talking about this week is really about incorporating into ourselves, incorporating into our hearts, our souls, our mind, and our strength a love for God so we can in turn illustrate that love toward our neighbors. And if you want to ask who our neighbors are, you can read Luke's account, Luke chapter 10 and verse 27 beginning, and he gives a tremendous, that is Jesus, a tremendous illustration of what it looks like to be a neighbor. And the end result of that, surprising to the one that questioned him, who was a scribe listed there as a lawyer, the end result is his shock and that he found out that everyone is his neighbor. And that included not only his friend, but his foes. And believe it or not, in our context, and you can be right there, Mark chapter 12, hopefully you'll have a scripture, a copy of scripture similar to mine where you can see some of chapter 11. But in the context, we've said so many times, there are several groups of people that are coming here. Each of those groups of people are making accusation against our Lord. They're making interrogation toward our Lord. And they're trying to make a stumbling block for the others round about them. 
And even though to some extent it probably seems to us looking on the outside that they're doing this and putting forth this effort because they, and we're fixing to read who that was again, but because they are making a conglomerate effort to gather and to do this together and as one, really in essence, these groups, all of them are very separated one from another. And so just to remind you what is happening, we've done this the last two evenings or what have you, and we'll do it again this evening. Mark chapter 11 and verse 18, then the scribes and the chief priests heard it, that is, heard what Jesus was teaching. And they heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now, from that point, we began to divide up these groups listed in the beginning, verse 27, chapter 11, the Sanhedrin called here the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders. We began to discuss a little farther into chapter 12. I'm just summarizing verse 13. And then he sent to them certain of the Pharisees, we've already discussed them, and certain of the Herodians to catch him in his words. You drop down to verse 18, which if you want to go ahead and start making some markings, we'll be focusing our attention there tonight. But then he says, and then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they ask him, saying, and of course they have their inquiry, their interrogation as well. And then the final group, which we've already really studied, but we'll continue to come back to verse 28 of chapter 12, listed here as the scribes, more or less represented that of the Pharisees. And on Sunday, if I recall correctly, when we talked about the Pharisees, we talked about them as far as their main standout characteristic, and that is they were proud. They were proud. And they came to Jesus to interrogate him specifically, and you can mark this in your margin if you want, verse 28 to about 34, because they had a question about priority. And the question about priority was, what is the first and the greatest commandment? And we tried to answer that or continue to answer that tonight as well as tomorrow night, just straight off the pages as Jesus did. On the next occasion, we backed up on last night to verse 13, and we talked a little bit about that secondary group in verse 13, that is the Herodians. And they were not the proud or the pious individuals in so much as they were basically just the political state of things. And I've continued to rehash that overnight and all day today. I keep coming back and forth to that. And I made a statement last night. I continue to stand behind to an extent. That's my disclaimer. To an extent. And that means to a point. <laughs> and that is that surprisingly the Herodians that are gathered here with the Pharisees in a complete conjoined effort with them to cause Jesus to stumble, to cause them to be able to discredit, to cause them, verse 18 of chapter 11, to make preparation to destroy him, those were not two religious sects as much as they were one religious sect called the Pharisees who were willing to gather with a political sect called the Herodians. And that's shocking because when you add in what we're about to mention, the Sadducees, you add in a third group to that boiler. And then within that boiler, although the boiling has come up, the bubbles are overflowing and you're, you're ready to clean the stovetop, these people have not mixed and not meshed yet with exception of wanting to cause Jesus to be destroyed. That's all. And so you're going to see groups, and this is kind of a side note, extra, uh, extra lesson to throw in here. You're going to see groups throughout your lives among us as people 
where they divide as a social, an economic, a political, and you can put all the iticals on the end of that, you're going to see people throughout your lives who are unwilling to be uh, gathered or unwilling to be joined, unwilling to be unified on so many matters. But when it comes to trying to destroy the cause of Jesus, they will stand together. And that's a warning. To me, that's a between the lines, hidden beneath the pages, warning to us. And I see it so many times. You can even align that with so supposedly quote-unquote churches. When it comes to the cause of Jesus Christ and His church, the one church that He established, all these other, loosely speaking, churches will gather and come against this one even though they be divided among themselves. Now that doesn't depress me. That doesn't destroy me. That actually uplifts me. Not that that takes place. But in the fact that I'm reminded again and again and again and again that the Bible is true. So we have the pious ones who question Jesus' authority. We had last night in the Herodians the political ones who question their own loyalty. So the heart and the soul. We had the lesson from Sunday, which ended with us making a summarizing statement to say Christianity is a religion of emotion. If I don't have feeling for my God, and I don't have feeling for God's people, and I don't have feeling for God's creation, which includes all people, I don't actually have God himself. And those Herodians, and their loyalty to Herod, in many senses put Herod on a pedestal so that they might worship him. So that they could stand back in their uh, feverish attitudes and their probably at some points in life panicking attitudes like we're experiencing today for many other reasons. And stand back and look to the Herods or look to the politicians of the day and think that they were in some way a part of their salvation when they were not. And we come down here now to this verse in verse 18. We're going to do exactly the same things. It's here on the screen behind me. We're going to start out with our examination of the text, both the context and the text. Then we're going to back up. We're going to have an education of the same, and that is the expression of it. What is the take-home point, the thing that we can know? And then what is the way we exercise in such. So let's start off our reading right here in verse 18 and talk about the Sadducees and specifically talk about why they were addressing our Lord, and in turn, why Jesus in turn addressed them specifically, I believe, in verse 30. Here's what it says here. Verse 18, chapter 12, the book of Mark. And then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. So you underline that in your minds, if not in your Bibles. The point we need to take away from the Sadducees, very simply, if they have a standout characteristic, it is they believed in their mind, there was no resurrection. Okay, now that resurrection accustomed itself to a bodily resurrection of the dead. Or even on that side, a spiritual resurrection of the dead. And we'll talk about more things they believed or maybe didn't a little farther. 
And then come on him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and they ask him, saying, and we mentioned the word ask on two different occasions. We're going to mention it for the third, but we're going to go a little farther. When you think about what the Pharisees were doing and the Herodians were doing in verse 13, they came in to quote King James translation to catch him. That is, they wanted to take and throw a, a really just an open net over Jesus in the hopes and with a possibility that they could catch him, other translations say, and other accounts say, catch him in his words. They wanted Jesus to mess up. They wanted Jesus to make a mistake and to come against not just them, but any of them. They would have walked away on this occasion, which I would again disclaim, I may not know for sure, but probably on Wednesday of what is called the Passion Week. And I use that only because we understand it. On Wednesday prior to Friday, in Jesus being hung upon a cross and crucified just a couple of days before, they come to Jesus with all of these interrogative questions. And they come to him in that case above verse 13 to catch him. Verse number 18, much like you find over in verse 28, they came and asked him. And remember, the word ask here implies that they came and stood over him to show their authority, supposedly, what they thought they had, to show their priority in things, supposedly, to question him to an extent that the word literally means to interrogate over. It literally means to accost him. Not a friendly group. But to expand that word, for you this will either be geeky or greeky. You got to listen close to hear the difference. Remember, the New Testament in which we read right here on these pages, thanks be to God in English, originally was recorded, the majority of such, originally was recorded in what is known as Koine or Common Greek. And I have to admit, Common Greek in Jesus' day, to a large extent, is much more specific and accurate than us, than what we have in English. And so when you have translations, and that's what we have to use, when you have translations, there are times when we might put it like this, some things are lost in translation. Another disclaimer. That's not to say, don't quote me from your notes, that Jim Merle said, we can't really trust our English Bibles because we lost some stuff in there and we just, you know, we might mess up. I didn't say that. Didn't intend to at least. That is just simply to say that their language in their day and in their time, the Greek language, common Greek, was extremely accurate and has a lot of, I would say today for us, maybe you would call it hidden gems that are in G-E-M, uh, not J-I-M, but a lot of hidden gems that are inside of that that we can learn from and gain from. So we're either going to be geeky or greeky or maybe both. Let me tell you what this word is. The word ask, A-S-K-E-D, in its original language, eporotano is the way I say it. Now, I speak Montreux Greek, not Grecian Greek. But eporotano, this word is what is known as, and this is where you want to take notes, it's written in the aorist, active, indicative, third person, Plural sense. He said, I'm so glad I came tonight. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me explain that a little bit. The aorist 
for the purpose of this word, doesn't mount to a hill of beans. It's too hard to identify, too hard to be specific, too hard to be dogmatic for the aorist part of such. But the active part of this clarifies that they are doing this now and are willing to continue if need be. Now think about that. They have come to the Son of God, God in a body. John 1, 1 to 3 and verse 14 explains such. They've come to the living Son of God in a body, stood in His face just a few days prior to His crucifixion, which He was well aware that was coming. And they accuse Him and they interrogate Him. And in this word, just that far, their intention is we will do this until we can do this no more. Until we get what we want, we will not stop. Again, from the perspective of the fact that we should be hated of all men, Christ said, you should be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. We're in a similar boat. Do not be surprised if the world, the irreligious world, or even in some stands, the religious world, because we follow truth, are willing to ask us, and that's a very mild word, or to interrogate us until they can no more. Questions will not stop. The aorist, the active, the indicative sense means that they are doing it with force. And that's in the word picture I draw. They were standing over him, lording over him, shaking their proverbial fist or fingers at him to make these accusations and to ask these interrogative questions. It comes in in the next place, in the third person, and that is, they don't even, and to some extent, they're not even doing it for themselves. They're doing it, and you can see this example in verse 13, right up the page from where we are, chapter 12. The Pharisees seemingly take the Herodians after they failed, and they push the Herodians and say, well, get him. Go ahead and get him. And then the last sentence I mentioned, I promise we're done with this part. It is in a plural form, which means that although they are directly making accusation and interrogation against our Lord, they are fine to let everybody else hear it. Now, Jesus made specific contrasting statements about those individuals, about the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and such, how they would oftentimes go and stand on the corners of the streets and pray out loud to be seen of men. How that they would oftentimes come at the, the temple grounds and such and all of such and they would cast their monies, their coins into these basically what we assume to be golden type baskets, if you will, in order to be seen of men. And so each of these groups we read about, whether it's those in 27 or 13 or 18 or 27 again in the next chapter, they all come to Jesus to ask him. But as they do it, I just this is just a picture. you got to look to see it. They come up and they say to Jesus, for example, like these will do, uh, the Sadducees says, uh, which, is, uh, which believe there's no resurrection. They said, Master. You wrote unto us, if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind, verse 19, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. And as they say it to him, they're doing this. Y'all hear that? 
yeah, the, the scribes and the chief priests and the and the Pharisees, they thought they had him. But watch this here. Watch what we do. They do not really ask him a question so much as they present to him a riddle. Now let's read on what that is. Master, verse 19. Moses wrote unto us that if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and should raise up seed unto his brother. Question for all of you Bible students. Is that true? If you, if you need, pull your chin. You do this. It is true. It is true. It is true. You need a reference for that. There are several of those. But you go specifically back to Leviticus chapter 25. Read verses 5 through 10. Leviticus 25 5 through 10, and you find out something that we refer to today as, and they have for centuries, by the way, as the Leverite Law. You say the Leverite Law, that really, that just, that just enhanced my knowledge again tonight. Well, the Leverite Law was actually very complicated yet simple. I say very complicated because individuals like the Sadducees or like the Pharisees or like the Herodians, whomever took hold of it, they wanted to complicate it. Remember, the Pharisees, just for example, had taken the ten laws of God. There were more laws of God than that, but they had taken those ten commandments and they had come up with 613 statements to explain those that they lived by. They live by oral tradition. The Pharisees live by mostly word of mouth to the extent, remember this reference as well, Matthew 15, verses 1, to 1 and 3, and then also verses 6 and 8, that Jesus had to scold them for such because they were putting their commandments above that of God. They were teaching those commandments, uh, the commandments of men as that of God. And he said, you honor me with your lips. But your heart, your emotion, is far from me. Now the Sadducees here, they step in, and if you were to put the Pharisees and the Sadducees together in any other context, which would have been rather difficult to do, they didn't join one another in fellowship meals and at fish fries. They would have come together and been arguing constantly, not just over resurrection, which was certainly the primary misgivings of the Sadducees, but they would have come together because the Pharisees would have said, if you ask, if we would approach one today from the original group, which is impossible, we would say, well, what do you believe about God? They would say, well, I believe everything that is written in your Bible from Genesis to Malachi. We believe in the law, and we believe in the prophets. Now, that went here, right over their heads. But that's what they did. But they would have also said, we believe as well in oral traditions. The Sadducees stand in tremendous contrast. And they stand back and say, oh, no, no. We do believe in the law. Genesis, as we know it, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They gave their honor to a point more so to Moses than God. 
And they would look at those five books and read through them and examine them and study them. And in doing that, they would not find much, if any much, said about a resurrection. I get Abraham and what we learn in the New Testament, he believed and he thought. They didn't understand that illustration either. They certainly didn't understand or want to understand much of anything about the Messiah that was to come because the prophets that predicted all of that, they washed over. They did not believe that stuff. They stood back, typically against the Pharisees, and said all that matters is the law of Moses. That's why in verse 19 they say, Master, Moses wrote... Do you see any holes in the argument? I get their way of verbalizing it. But if they had been a Jew by the meaning of a true Jew, that is after the order of Abraham, for example, their statement would have better clearly been said or should have been said, God wrote unto us. God said this. No, they gave the credit to Moses. What Moses said was law in missing the fact that was here in this vicinity that Moses spoke only for God. Side note for perspective. Whenever you take the Bible or at least the Testament under which we live and you read from Matthew to Revelation and you read books like these or especially, let's take for example the epistles of Paul, all of those. When you read those and you say, well, I'm looking at 1 Timothy because that's where it fell. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandments of our God and Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope unto Timothy, my son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace be unto you and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I see the word Paul. Paul didn't say that. God did. Moses said, so they said. Now to explain more about these people and their, if you will, inquiry that they're making, it is true they did not believe in the resurrection. Founded upon the fact the majority of what they did believe was based only on the law of Moses. And when they asked the question of this, and we haven't read it all yet, we'll pick up in verse 20. And now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife and left no seed. And the second took her, verse 21, and died, neither left any seed. And the third, likewise, and seven, verse 22 says, had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. Question, in the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For seven had had her to wife. Again, Leviticus 25, verses 5 through 10, the Leverite law. The application of such would be divided into one of two stands. Either they would do as Leviticus 25, 5 through 10 said, which is the illustration, even as wild as it is borne out, if one dies, the brother takes. If that brother dies, the next takes. If that brother dies, the next takes. And I won't go to seven because I'll lose count anyway. They should have been obedient to that. That should be their answer. But they hope Jesus doesn't agree. Their options in Leviticus 25 
or two, twofold. It looks like it is spelled Y-I-B-B-U-M, okay? Y-I-B-B-U-M. The Y is almost a J sound, and it has some Hebrew. It is Hebrew. It is a Hebrew word. And so there would have to be a little bit <laughs> thrown in there. And it starts with more of a J. So I'm going to say it seems like it says Gibbon or Gabum. That is the Leverite law when the brother does his job. When the brother steps in and says, you know what, my brother has passed. She has no children. I'll take her to wife. We'll bring forth seed in the generations to honor my brother. When that is done, that is that Y-A-B-B-U-M. When it is not done, the out of that was known as the his law, and I don't pronounce that correctly either, but the his law said that with that certain scenario there, if the wife says, I've known that brother a long time, and I married the one I wanted, and I don't want that one. Or if he says, I've known that woman a long time while she was married to my brother, and I've got a wife, and I don't need that one, or many other stipulations, including age and so many things. That his boss allowed them by law to refuse. Say again, why does that mount to a hill of beans? This is the mindset of these men. They took the law of Moses, I give them credit for such, as literal good. They, contrary to the Pharisees, took only the law of Moses and threw out all man-made traditions and practices. Amen to them for that. But in the argument that they make or the riddle that they present here, they say to Jesus, here's the law, here's the law extended, here's the law extended again, here's the law extended times seven times, give us an answer. And guess what they do? David, can I pop your suspenders tonight? They pop their suspenders in pride. Because in their minds, this question of, and you got your, uh, you got your um, priority from the Pharisees, you got your loyalty from the Herodians, you got your eternity question being asked here by the Sadducees. What they did in that was they basically stand back in the context and they say to our Lord, Lord, show us eternity, but in the way we already think. Side note illustration. Many in the religious world will come to us sometimes with what seems to be honest and sincere inquiry. And when the Bible is opened, and it will not be on us, although we do have responsibility toward them, when the Bible is opened and the Scriptures are examined, will in turn say, that's not what I thought. That's not the way I 
think. That's not what I I believe. And they'll miss it all. That is the examination of the context. You say, oh, here, we better look at the clock again. We'll move quicker here. Look at the text. Verse 28, or we, we'll read Jesus' answer down to that. Jesus' answer to them, verse 24 said, answering them and said to them, Do you not know that, do you not therefore err? You know, they had it lined up. They had the perfect scenario and the riddle and, and this was going to work. He said, don't you, don't you err? Because ye, look at that. Because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. You want me to illustrate that? I better be sure I do it on the correct side. He just slapped them in the face. They knew the scriptures. They were using Scripture. Did they know them? Verse 25, And when they shall rise from the dead, neither shall they marry nor are they given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Look at this. They not only had a problem with the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. As a matter of fact, to a large extent, they didn't actually honestly believe in eternity. But yet they ask a question of such. Because their motives are pure? No. Because their motives are good? Mm -mm. Because their focus was similar to everyone else. They wanted to destroy Jesus. Then in verse uh, 26. I've got a smile. Maybe it ain't a smiling subject, but I got a smile. And touching the dead, that they rise. Have you not read? Have you not read? Please look at this. In the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake and saying, what did he say then? He said, you err, verse 24, you don't know the scripture. You have not read. And now he says, in case you need to know where this is, the scripture reference is the account of Moses in the burning bush. Now these are the heroes. These are the Sadducees, the very privileged people. I didn't even discuss all that, but very privileged, very pious. These are people who had power. They had wealth. They had authority. They had really more so, more of that than the Sanhedrin and more of that than the Pharisees and more of that than the Herodians. They actually had it. But they thought they had it because of this. Their knowledge. Latter part of verse 26, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He didn't separate them. He brought them together as they would understand. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Oh, therefore, do greatly. uh, I won't do it again. Air. Another slap in the face. And one of the scribes came, verse 28, and heard them, that is, this group, reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well. 
Now he stands back and says, that was, that was pretty good. I have to admit, that, that wasn't bad. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, but I, I got an idea. Perceiving they didn't answer them well, ask him, same exact word, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the scribe, representative of the Pharisees. Jesus answered him and said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord with all thy heart, Pharisees. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, Herodians. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, Sadducees. They had it. But although they had it, they did not have it. They had missed it. How does this bear out? The mind, as we know it, is involved in many, many things. And mainly in this context, it is involved with two things, one being the one here on the screen, understanding, and the second one being thought. Understanding here, and this is just a reference, just to remind us of what uh, these things are, 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 are like what these things are about, if you want to call it that. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. For this cause, we also, since the day you heard of it, do not cease to pray. This is Paul to the Colossian brethren, by the way. We do not cease to pray for you and desire that you might be filled. F-I-L-L-E-D is a Greek word, play rue, which literally, if you want to picture it, it's like a tea glass. Not sweet tea, mate. Inside, like a tea glass that has been filled to the brim and it's got the bubble on top. Okay. Paul prayed that they would be filled. Filled with what, Paul? Verse 9, Colossians 1. That you might be filled with knowledge of his will and wisdom in all wisdom and spiritual, there's the word, understanding. You see, there is a vast difference between those three represented things, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Knowledge is what it sounds like. I hate it when my children's uh, teachers do this vocabulary words. It means to know. It involves thinking. It involves what we would call uh, wrinkles in the brain. Wisdom is applied knowledge. It is knowledge that comes to life. Not sure they had that. We'll give them credit for some. It took wisdom to try to ask such question, I guess. But I know one they missed. Understanding. They missed that. And you and I today, all of us, I'll point all the fingers I have at me, many times miss because I miss the point of this book, because of my understanding of it. 
Not what it says. Not what it means. But because of the way I understand it. These powerful political type minds. Those who were in this case loyal to some things. But not to everything. Who had questions of eternity. Yet lacked understanding. These other verses right here you'll be very familiar with. Won't even go through that other than verse 2 of this very familiar passage. That we, have a, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. You want to put a word in place of that? By the renewing of our understanding. The way we understand the word of God. Not the way we know it. Have you ever known anyone? Who to the best of your knowledge and probably to theirs. They know the Bible backwards and forwards. They seemingly know every book, chapter and verse. Phrase by phrase and word by word. They can explain things to you. That you have never considered. But if you get them down to their roots and you take what they know and put it in parallel with what they do, the lack of understanding becomes ever apparent. You say, I know a fellow like that. I do too. I stand in every morning of my life to some point and I look straight in the mirror and I see it. We look into the mirror of God's Word as illustrated by the inspired pen of James. We see that mirror. We see that perfect law of liberty. And in that illustration, we look in that to see if we see whom? Jesus. That's where this lies. A few things you can add to this, and we don't have the time to do that, but again, the mind is attributed to our understanding. The mind in itself is a part of our thinking. When you move this into the expression, I should say the education of this evening, here is you a take-home point. Just as Christianity was a religion of emotion for the Pharisees. Just as Christianity should have been a religion of devotion for the Herodians. Christianity to this group, the Sadducees, and specifically us going forward, is a religion of notion. Why didn't you say knowledge, preacher? Because notion rhymes with devotion and emotion, okay? No, not really. I say that because notion has to do with what we think about what we know. If you've been married to a spouse for any length of time, they not only know who you are, they know what you are. And they have much lesser 
knowledge than God. Three words you can couple for your memory's sake to understand this a little bit and to take a check mark list. Don't want to say that we should do that in this case necessarily. But to see if my thinking, if my understanding, if my notions are right, consider the things that God said. In Colossians 1 and verse 9, and we went to it just a moment ago. I'll go back to it, whether you choose to or not. But when he makes that pinnacle statement there that these people should be filled, F-I-L-L-E-D, pleruno, with knowledge of his will and all wisdom, it's not in the King James translation, but the original language says, therefore, in all spiritual understanding. You see, what I understand about the maths or the sciences or the histories of this life or any other subject that might come to mind, what I understand about the human body medically or physically, or what I understand about this supposed world we live in that's such a financially based world matters none in comparison to my spiritual understanding. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, also on the screen. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. That statement is made by the breath of God through the pen of Paul, but it's absolutely reflective upon any of these groups and especially upon this group that is gathered here this evening. We've got to take consideration of how we think. How do we live? What do we do with what we are blessed in our time to know? How do we live this out? How do we never find ourselves standing in front of Jesus in not a literal sense, but in a very a-literal sense? How do we stand in the face of Jesus and not make these same inquiries? How do we stand in his face and not have the same answer given to us, which is inclusive in these phrases broken of these two verses? Hear the God of Israel. Hear the God of forever, because the Lord God, God is one God, and I, you, he would say, Jim, you need to love me with all your mind. Give me all of your mind. We do it humbly. We, in turn, you can take that note. We do it as well, carefully. And then we do it as well, personally. This must live in me. One more passage, and I will turn there, and I encourage you to do the same. Go to the book of Philippians. When you get there, go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I want you to examine with me verses 1 through 4. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, the word consolation could be interpreted comfort. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, the subject of our topic, if any fellowship in spirit, if any bowels, that is where the emotions lie, in mercies, 
Paul says to these brethren, fulfill ye my joy. Why? How, Paul? That ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Now, get your, get your marker out. And one mind. Love God. Love Christ with all thy mind. How does that bear out? Think about others. Verse 4 starts with it. Look not every man upon the things of it, upon his own things, but every man also on the things of others. If I could use my mind for one spiritual good, and I were to use my mind for one spiritual good to honor God and to give Him glory and to raise Him up in this sense with the notion, the understanding of what I know. I do it when I think about others. What would the church look like? I've been here I don't know, three days? So I know everything about you already? What would the church look like here? The one that meets at Columbus Avenue in its location. The one that on the signs claims to be the Columbus Avenue, meets at Columbus Avenue, calls itself the church of the possession of Christ's. What would this church be like if every individual in it was, and I've highlighted the word, like-minded and of one mind and refused to be a part of strife or vainglory? I didn't highlight such. It's there in the Scripture as well. Verse the 2, the latter part of it, and were willing to esteem another better than themselves. If I, as a part of my congregation at home, would look not every man on his own things, but also on the things of others, what would the community look like? This area. I've come across a few little parts of this. You've got Anderson, you've got Noblesville, you've got, and you could name the communities much better. What would those communities look like if the church that met here made them well aware that you were more than willing to reach to them. And as we illustrated it on Sunday, to take the hand of Jesus and to extend it to them. That Leverite law, if it was agreed upon by the Y-I-B-B-U-N Yebun, Jebun, it made what is called a Goel which is exactly what was done for Ruth by Boaz, the go-between. The one who gave her opportunity to continue to live. Death will fall upon any of us, all of us. But when it falls upon those that are lost, the only opportunity they have to live is when the church in the area, whatever that area is, 
puts itself aside and thinks about them. And why do we do that? Because according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we think about others, but in verse 5, we think about Jesus. Here's what it says. Let this mind, let this mind, let this mind, let this understanding, let this way of thinking, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How much did Jim Merle need to be in Anderson, Indiana on Tuesday, October 5th at 8.05 p.m.? More than you know. More than you know. Because I, like you, my focus and my mind, my notion, need to look to God. And the love I have for this world and those around me needs to be seated and foundationally placed on mimicking the mind of Christ. For me, to this point, what a study this has been. For you, to this point, what an opportunity we've had. So that we can love our God with all our hearts and know how to do it. And to love our God with all our souls. And really begin to grasp how to do it. And to love our God now with all our minds. Where's your focus? What's your conversation? What are the things that come out of your mouth? What are the things that are allowed to come before your eyes? What are the things that stand in your path? What are the things that bring you bring into your lives by choice? What are the things that are filtered through your mind every day other than God? For me, it's a sobering thought. But yet a thought worth considering. You're here tonight and you're not a child of God's. I want to be completely honest with you in a couple of areas. Number one, I came to Anderson, Indiana for you. I don't know exactly who you are. But if it is you, it is you. If it is you, or you, or you, it's you. And I didn't come to Anderson, Indiana and spend time away from my family 
and my children and my wife who actually I find out today is sick and didn't bother to tell me because she didn't want to, you know, I didn't do that for even me. I do that for God. And I'm here tonight to offer the Lord's invitation to you to take the love that you have for Him and even in these areas, in your heart, in your soul, and in your mind thus far, and to give that to God through obedience. The invitation is open. The way Jesus specifically asked of us to be obedient to Him was through hearing His Word. He specifically asked of us to be obedient to Him by not just hearing it, but believing it. They had some of this, but not at all. The way he asked of us, and we don't know the rest of this story. We don't know how history boils out. It's only my assumption and hope and prayer that someone in these groups, someone in these groups, after hearing the statements of our Lord, stepped away in repentance and said, you know what, forget my priorities and where they were. Forget my loyalties and where they exist. Forget my, uh, my piety and my... Pr forget all of that. And turn to God. And then be fully obedient in baptism. Because that's the pattern the Lord left for us. You're here this evening, you are the child of God's. And you're more like I am. And maybe you're trying to be honest like I am. And you're trying to consider. How much you really love God. Because you're willing to consider how much He really loves you. Read the context on your own. Jesus who leaves these individuals frustrated, fed up, who if I would have been him would have walked away from them forever. In the context, read the red letters of this chapter. He comes back to them in one more effort to save their souls. The invitation is open tonight. A song has been selected to assist and encourage us. Uh, why not give God your all and give him your love? Why together we stand and as we sing.